0: Uh, his footsteps is what I want to preach to you about tonight. And I do, I, I don't, I'm not sure if you could put that first slide up there before we pray. Because I just, I want you to know the power up here. If you can put that first slide that's not up there. Anyway, while the first slide's going up, I wanted a slide uh, of footsteps. This was about 10 or 11 o'clock this morning. So I googled images of footsteps, and it's all these desert landscapes. It's on the back wall in case you want to see it. Um, And it's all this sand and desert stuff, and I thought, that's what they always show. I don't want to show sand. So about 10 or 11 o'clock this morning, you know what I said to myself? I talked to myself. I want to show footprints in the snow. There's... there it is in a smaller image right there, footprints in the snow, and then about, what was it, one or two o'clock, here it comes out of nowhere. I mean, look at that. I just have to make a slide of it and it happens. I just, (laughs) that's how it works. But tonight I do, uh, and and don't worry, I think it's supposed to be in the 60s come Saturday, so uh, we'll all get sick again, Uh, but I I, I do want to challenge us tonight Uh, ...about following in Jesus' footsteps. I want us to pray this evening that the Lord would have his way tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you thankful and privileged to be in your presence. And Lord, we don't take it lightly any time we gather together, Lord, as believers, Lord, in your name. And we ask you, Lord, we know that your presence is here. We ask you that your word, which is already anointed, would do its work in my heart and in our lives tonight, God. Anoint our ears to hear you tonight, Lord, to receive your word. We give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, to start off, I have a couple verses I'd like to read, and some of them I actually did read Sunday, but we're going to follow a slightly different track. The first one is found in First John chapter 2, in verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked, speaking of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where we find the instructions that Paul gives the Corinthians about communion, starts out that chapter, it says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, meaning that he is a follower of Christ. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 21, it says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Before I get into this, I want you to realize, we're talking about following his footsteps, that I want you to realize, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, but if I am to follow in somebody's footsteps, that means that they have already gone where I'm heading. And I just want to take just a minute here to encourage you about that. That if I am to follow his footsteps, that means I'm walking where he has already walked. And let me remind you that he has already walked the path of your life. The situations that come your way, he's not just throwing them, them at you random. You're not just walking through them blindly. But I believe that Jesus walked the path of your life. And so uh, uh, even though circumstances may come against me, even though trials may happen in my life, I can still take confidence in the fact that he has gone before me in every situation. If I continue to faithfully follow in his footsteps, I know that he made it so I can make it as well. We see the challenge, though, of Jesus' life. And really, when you begin to think about it, these verses tell us to follow Jesus. He's the example. Paul, uh, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We... And if you begin to think about what it means to follow Jesus, really, I don't know if in your mind, but in my mind, it almost becomes this insurmountable task in my life. I mentioned Sunday we talked about uh, the challenge of following a man who was sinless. We're called to follow after somebody that was perfect. Does that mean that every time I make a mistake, I'm suddenly not following Him, and that I'm in sin and darkness? Well, we covered that Sunday, and we talked about how if I have repentance a part of my life that keeps me in the light, that keeps me following His path. But that, and, and, and we, we look at his life. It, 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 I mean, it begins with a miraculous birth. There's the age of 12, they, his parents find him teaching in the temple, astounding the scholars. I don't know what you were doing at 12, but probably not that. You were probably astounding people, but not in the positive way. Well, I shouldn't say that about you, I'll say that about me. <laughs> He, he turned water into wine. He opened blinded eyes. Deaf ears were opened. Lame were, were uh, made whole. He fed multitudes of thousands of people. He raised the dead to life. And there's countless untold miracles in, that, that are not even recorded in Scripture, I'm sure. We see that devils were cast out as He spoke to them. We find Him walking on water, we find the very sacrifice of his life of redeeming the entire world and then his resurrection. And this is the person that you and I are called to follow. I don't know if the task seems daunting to you, but it does to me, because that life is a challenge to follow. It's kind of like when you read the list, you know, you think you're having a rough time in your life. And this is not to belittle challenges. But then you read Paul's account of all of his life. I was stoned three times and and shipwrecked and I was beaten and all this kind of stuff. You're like, well, I guess it's not too bad. But when I think about the life of Jesus and that his life is my example, really, it almost makes me feel defeated before I start. There was uh, a few years back. Uh, when I still had intentions of being young and thought I could uh, still relive the glory days, uh, I decided that I would uh, begin exercising again. So I took a stopwatch and my tennis shoes and went to the track. And I used to have a pretty good time for the mile. I used to be able to do it in just about five minutes. And uh, so I thought, this will motivate me. I'm going to time myself and it will motivate me. So I gasped my way around that track Um, (laughs) knowing that it couldn't be that bad and I crossed the mile mark and stopped the stopwatch and I was almost at 9 minutes (laughs) the opposite of motivating me I took the stopwatch walked back to my vehicle put the stopwatch away never went back to the track that's how demotivated I was (laughs) I was so far off it's almost double it's like there's no way there's no way I can make that up. Sometimes, though, when we, when we think about uh, following after Jesus, it can seem so far off that really it's almost like running a nine-minute mile when you used to be able to do a five. Like, I can't even make that up. That's double the time. I don't even want to begin to think about it. And I came across this quote by Martin Luther. And there, Martin Luther, um, one of the leaders of the Reformation, whatever about his life, I believe that we can find the truth in his words, and this is where I'm heading tonight. He said, in reference to following Christ in His life, He said this, It is not Christ walking on the sea, but His ordinary walk that we are called on to imitate. It's not His walking on the sea, but His ordinary walk that we are called on to imitate. Now you and I, we tend to look at the highs of people's lives. Because that's, that's the exciting times. That's, that's the big moments. And, and we look at those high points, and, and many times we feel like, Uh, uh, We despair or insurmountable challenges because their life was so great Whether it's a a biblical character or somebody in history than their walk with God You look at their life and and the sacrifices and the great things they did and all this stuff And and it seems like there's no way that I could ever do that because we don't really ever take time All we see is the highs we don't ever look at life in between the highs in those people's lives And really, it's that life that is lived between the mountaintop experiences that actually leads us to the mountaintop experiences. And I want you to understand tonight that our life, I'm not just talking about valleys either, the opposite of mountains. Because life, you know, is not just made up of hills and valleys. It's not just all great times, but you know what? Neither is it all bad times. In fact, I would say that life very often is more like a plateau, just level ground. Really, if you want to call it life, is really more like the daily grind. You see, crisis drives us to our needs. It's easy in a time of crisis to call on the name of the Lord. It's easy when sickness hits to begin to pray. And the mountaintop, when we're on the mountaintop, it builds our faith. And we're like, man, God's so awesome. It's so great. I didn't know how this happened. But it's in the daily, faithful, consistent life. Of just living every day that becomes the struggle. When there's no crisis to drive us to our knees and yet we feel our faith lagging because it seems like nothing is happening. Remember I'm challenging you to walk as he walked. But perhaps we can make it more manageable than thinking that to follow him my life is constantly casting out devils. My life is constantly walking down the street and healing blinded eyes and lame walking. And there are three areas that I want us to look at that I believe that we need to follow his footsteps in. And there are things that each of us can do. Now, I've coached various sports, mainly soccer, and there's a few things uh, that I tell soccer players. And the first thing is, is even if you're not good, you can give effort. You can give effort. You don't have to be the most skillful, but if you're not out there running, well, then that's just not good because everyone can do that. These are things that I believe each of us can do. It takes no great skill. It takes no great effort. But these are the things that I begin to do in my daily life. No, they may not seem like a mountaintop experience. No, it may not seem like walking on water. But I believe that God has called us to more than walking on water. He's called us to a daily, consistent walk with God. And here's the thing. Is that as we look at these, I believe that as we do these things, the miraculous happens out of these things. We're searching for the miraculous without having the daily faithful consistency that we will find in these things. And and, and I may have even spoke about some of these before, but the first thing, again, I've I've actually spoke about this before, and that is the first thing about Jesus' life that I must put into my life and realize that if I want to walk as He walked, if I want to follow in His footsteps, that I must be a teacher in my life. Jesus was recognized as a teacher in His life. We find throughout Scripture many times people referred to Jesus as a teacher. In fact, he was known as such a teacher that perhaps the most telling example is when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and she is going to uh, uh, survey the tomb and she's going to mourn at the tomb. And she shows up and the tomb is empty. The angel's there. She walks out and she sees a man that she mistakes for a gardener. She finally realizes it's Jesus. And the first thing that she says to him is, Rabboni, or teacher, Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal, but Mary Magdalene was a lady who had had seven devils cast out of her, and yet she does not refer to Jesus as a deliverer or a restorer or a miracle worker, which he was, but she refers to him as a teacher first and foremost. We see that every time that people gather to hear Jesus, it's him teaching. That's what Jesus does. He teaches. And if you and I are to follow in his footsteps, you and I must be teachers in our lives. I understand that there's giftings of teaching. I understand that there's an office of a teacher. But the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. While not everybody is called to get up in front of people, while not everyone is called to teach in the traditional way, I believe that every one of us is called to be a teacher in some form or some fashion. And there's two aspects of teaching that very quickly I would just like to touch on. While Jesus taught to thousands of people at a time, we know that there was multitudes. We fed multitudes of people. There was great crowds that gathered. I want to remind you that he didn't just teach the thousands, but he also taught the twelve. And sometimes he even split the 12 into smaller groups. In fact, one time we find him teaching one Samaritan woman at the well. Another time we find him teaching a Pharisee that came to him by night by the name of Nicodemus. And so I want you to understand that my teaching does not depend on the number of people. That's the first thing. I can be a teacher if it's one person, if it's five people, if it's 2,500 people, but I must have teaching involved in my life somehow. The second is that while Jesus did confound the scholars in the temple at the age of 12, and while he often engaged the Pharisees on matters of the law and a variety of things, he also spoke to the people by using parables and everyday opportunities to teach in his life. Too many times we relegate teaching as something that we can't do because, well, I'm not smart enough. I can't study. I'm not intelligent enough, but that's not true because teaching comes in everyday life moments. Truth does not have to be tied up in long words and complicated theologies. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. Well, I can't teach. I don't have all that stuff. Well, just do you have the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life? Can you explain to someone the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then you need to be teaching in your life. And I would challenge you to find somebody to teach, even if you don't think it's really teaching. Paul tells Timothy it's interesting. He writes to Timothy and to Titus, and he tells, them these are, he tells them that the older men, the older women, should be teaching the younger men and women in doctrine, and how to behave, and how to love, and how to honor their husbands, how to treat their wives, how to be sober, or the word is actually just be sane, you think the world's going crazy? You know what it needs? It needs some good seasoned saints to train the young ones how not to go crazy. It says don't teach them how to be sane. Notice, though, that Timothy and Titus, they, they, while many people say they were not the official pastor, they were a delegate of, of Paul, they were in a pastoral role. And he, Paul does not give the, 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 the issue of doctrine, he does not give the issue of conduct, he does not give the issue of, of marriage relations to the pastor. He gives it to elder saints in the church and says, these are the people that should be training up the church. If I'm to follow in his footsteps, I need to realize that I must be a teacher in my life. If I want to be like Jesus Christ, I need to find somebody to teach in some way. The second thing, if I'm to follow in his footsteps, I should be a teacher. The second thing is I must have compassion in my life. We mentioned on Sunday the passage where people came before Jesus and they come before him on judgment day and say, We cast out devils in your name. We healed in your name. We we preached in your name and prophesied in your name, and yet we find they're cast aside on Judgment Day, just because I perform actions in His name and just because His anointing flows through me does not mean I am approved by Him. But we find another passage in Matthew concerning Judgment Day that describes a people, a group of people who do make it. In Matthew chapter twenty-five, starting in verse thirty-four, then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, ye blessed of My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was in hunger and you gave me meat I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me Then shall the righteous answer him saying Lord When did we see you hungry and feed thee? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took you in, or naked, and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and came unto you? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. We find here, this passage is so interesting to me, because we find here a group of people who make it into heaven. And Notice what is not mentioned. There is no mention of miracles. There is no mention of healings. There's no mention of prophecies There's no mention of devils being cast out. There's no mention of sermons being preached There's no mention of souls being saved even there is no mention of anything that you and I would consider as Spiritually important to make it to heaven and yet this is the group that is pleasing to God They fed the hungry they gave water to the thirsty they clothed the naked they visited the sick They visited the prisoner in fact What is so amazing about this passage to me is that on judgment day, they stand before Jesus. Now, well, anyway, I'll get to that in just a minute, but they stand before Jesus and Jesus commends them. He says, well done. You have done a great job and they are confused. They're confused. They did these things not because they know they knew that they should. They did not do these things out of obligation. They did not feed the the hungry so they could get something back. They didn't do it because they were a Christian and they were supposed to do it, but they did it out of compassion in their hearts. That's why they were confused. There was no religious obligation behind what they did. These were simply people who were following in the footsteps of Jesus. They didn't do it out of abundance of what they had. They didn't do it out of the leftovers that they had or the extra that they had, but it was simply a way of life to show compassion to others and they stood before jesus on that day confused because all they had done was show compassion all they had done was make it a way of life now i don't know about you but when i think of judgment day and standing before the lord i don't know how you think it's going to be but in my mind i often see myself scared did i make it did i do enough all the things that I missed, all the opportunities I missed, all the things that I know I should have done and didn't do. And yet these people stand there confused by God saying, you did a great job. You know what? There's nothing more that I would like in my life than to stand before the Lord and be confused by His approval because His compassion is poured out of my life because I've seen those in need and not done it because I'm a Christian or because it's the right thing to do, but simply because my heart feels for that person. And I want you to understand something. I want us to look. I'm just going to read these real quick. Some miracles of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus sees a multitude full of sick and he heals them, it says. In Matthew 15, Jesus feeds a crowd of over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus heals the eyes of two blind men. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus healed the man called Legion who had a thousand devils in him. That's a lot. I hope that's not your kid. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds over 4,000 with seven loaves. And in Luke chapter seven, he raised a widow's uh, dead son. Now, if that was my life, I'd be happy. That's not every miracle he did. But if I fed five, if I just did one of those things, wouldn't you be happy? Just one. But I want you to notice something. These are seven major miracles that Jesus did. And these are not the only ones, but specifically with these, there's something that connects every single one of these miracles before the miracle ever took place. It says in Scripture that there was a need that caused Jesus to be moved with compassion. Let me put this forward to you. How many of you would like to see more miracles? How many of you would like to see devils cast out and healings and 5,000 people fed? How many of you would really like to see 5,000 people fed and Getting 12 baskets left over? That's like Ryan's. That would be wonderful. But let me put it to you this way. The reason every one of those miracles happened, Scripture tells us, is because Jesus was moved with compassion. Perhaps the reason we don't see more miracles is because we're no longer moved with compassion. Perhaps it's not an issue of our faith. Well, if I had more faith, if they had more faith, what if I simply had more compassion in my life and I cared? You see, we're we're so concerned. We want to see more miracles. We want to see more healings. But perhaps I just care enough about the people that that I want them healed just because they're a good person, because I want to see their life improve. And it has nothing to do with, well, we had 10 healings this year or we had this. Jesus was moved with compassion. And when he did the daily things, when he lived his life every day, moved with compassion, suddenly miracles fall. The word compassion speaks of the deepest feelings of man. In, in scripture, it, it refers to the bowels or the intestines. Something felt very deeply. Raise your hand if you've been there. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. <laughs> that was compassion you were feeling earlier. <laughs> you know, compassion every about an hour after the Mexican restaurant every Sunday. No. Okay, It speaks of a heart in which mercy resides. Compassion speaks of a heart in which mercy resides. It literally means to suffer with the person. Now, understand that some people, this is easier for them than others, but if I'm to follow in his footsteps, I've got to live a life of compassion. Like I said, perhaps we've gotten to the point where the miracle itself, where the deliverance, where the healing is more important than the person themselves. But the miracles, the healings, the deliverances were born out of Jesus' compassion for the person. If I want to follow in his footsteps, I've got to have compassion in my life. I must be a teacher if I want to follow in his footsteps. I've got to have compassion if I want to follow in his footsteps. And again, these are things that take no talent. It takes no talent to feed somebody. It takes no talent to see someone that needs a drink and give it to them. It takes no talent to, in, in, in fact, uh, James talks about it, how the, if we say we have religion and see someone and, and they're freezing cold and they're about to go out in the snow and they're in a t-shirt and they're freezing cold and you say, you know what, I believe the Lord's going to keep you warm, <laughs> you're not very good. You need to give them a coat because you can believe all day long, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But if, I'm going to live, if I want to see the miraculous, if I, want to, if I want to make sure I'm going to make it into heaven, if I want to follow in His footsteps as Scripture commands me to do, then these are things that are in the daily life. Isn't a mountaintop experience giving someone some food? No, it's probably not. But my daily life needs to exhibit it. And lastly, I have to be a teacher. I have to have compassion. And lastly, I have to have a love for the lost have to have a love for the lost these are things that take no talent they take no ability the things that anyone could do Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35 says this in Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people so he's doing this great work and it says but when he saw the multitudes he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, truly, uh, sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, and here's the words that you can probably quote, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. To follow in Jesus' footsteps, I must have a love for the lost. This challenges me Because in verse 36 it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Let me ask you, when was the last time that the multitude moved you with compassion? When was the last time that I wept over a multitude? I know that I can weep over my family. I know if my kids weren't saved and they were lost and they were backslidden, I know I can weep over my kids. I know I've got close friends that if they... If they left the Lord, I know I could weep over them. That's not the question, though. He didn't, I, I can't just fall in his footsteps because I have a love for my family, a love for my friends. But when he saw the multitudes, when he just saw the lost, that he didn't even know. Luke chapter 19 says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. You see, it wasn't the fact That he knew those people that made him weep. You see, you and I could do that. You and I could think of people in our lives that aren't saved, that need the Lord, that we're close to. And it could move us to tears because we know they need the Lord. We know they're lost unless they find the Lord in their life. And that bothers me because I'm close to them. They're my family, they're my friends. But that wasn't why Jesus looked over the city and he saw every person and they were all his friends. They were. No, the fact, the simple reason that he wept was just because of the fact that they were lost. So let me ask you, can you weep over people that you don't know but are lost? You see, to me, in my mind, and perhaps not in yours, but to me, that's the challenge if really I have a love for the lost. Otherwise, the other's just a love for my family. It's just a love for my friends. But when was the last time there was people that I don't know, but I know they're lost? Move me because of my love for the lost. If I want to follow in his footsteps, I've got to have a love for the lost. And I'm closing here in just a few minutes. Luke chapter 15 and verse 20. This is the story of the prodigal son. And it says, and he arose, this is near, the, the son is coming back. He arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father left his house, left his land, left his dwelling, and he ran out to meet his lost son on the road. Hebrews states it this way. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp bearing his reproach jesus was led outside of the camp he was led outside of jerusalem physically he died outside of the camp or jerusalem he redeemed you and i outside of the camp In fact, Scripture tells us that He redeemed you and I, if we put it in a spiritual way, although physically He was led outside of the camp. This is what it means spiritually. It means that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not die for the righteous. He died for sinners. He died for you and I. He went outside the camp to find you and died for you and redeemed your soul. He left the safety of the camp. He left the safety and comfort of what He knew. He left the traditions of how things should be done, of the ceremonies and and all the pomp and circumstance because he knew the ones that he was sent out to seek and to save could not be found inside the camp, but they were outside of the camp. He came not just for those that were righteous. He came not just for the Jews, but he knew there were Gentiles out there and he had to leave the camp to reach them. Now I'm not advocating about leaving the church and I'm not saying you should leave doctrine and holiness and truth. But I do want to challenge you and ask you tonight, when was the last time that you really left the camp? I'm asking myself the question. When was the last time that we really became a part of a church without walls, as it says on the screen every Sunday? You see, we get so confined inside our relationships within the church, and again, I'm not advocating, and if you were there Sunday, you heard me say it, I'm not advocating that you don't have relationships in the church, you should. You should. But we get so confined inside our relationships. We get so confined inside of our church events. We get so confined inside of our good church. So much so that we forget that the field is not in the church, but it's outside the camp. In fact, Hebrews tells us in terms of reaching souls... Now I know His presence is with with us, and so. But in terms of reaching souls, Jesus is outside the camp because that's where He saved you. And that's where he saved me was outside the camp. He didn't save you in a church house because you were perfect. He went outside the camp to save you. The parable tells us that he left the 99 and went out looking for the one. He went out in the field. He left the safety, the comfort. He left it and went out looking for the one lost soul because he loves souls. And if I want to follow in his footsteps, I've got to realize that there's got to be a love for souls inside my heart that goes beyond just my immediate family, that goes beyond the people immediately around me. And am I willing to leave the camp? Am I willing to go outside where I'm comfortable? To talk to people that I'm not comfortable talking with? But if I've got a love for souls, it doesn't matter in my life. And I want to challenge you with this. Actually, let's just stand that way to make it even shorter. Look at that. Determined in my mind, if I can't say something good, I'll be short. That way you still like it. But I want to challenge you with this in closing. I believe we have a friendly church. I believe we have a welcoming church. And I'm not knocking that at all because I think that's very important. But I want to challenge you with this. Is this simply a church where all are welcome? Or is this a church that's willing to go out into the highways and byways and compel people to come to the wedding feast, as the parable says? We put it to you in a little bit more modern vernacular. Is this a church that is willing to accept the homosexual, the drug addict, the outcast in through our doors? Which I believe we should. But that's not the challenge I'm placing before you. Because Jesus said, I'm outside the camp, and Hebrews says, You need to go outside the camp where He is. Is it enough for a church just to be willing to accept them when they come in? Or am I willing to go outside the camp and find the addict? Am I willing to go outside the camp and find the outcast? Am I willing not just to welcome the homosexual that walks through the door, but am I willing to go find the homosexual and bring them in? You see, there's a fine line. I'm good with anyone walking through the doors. But when I've got to walk out the doors and go find them, I've got to have a love for souls. Jude says this in his closing. He's talking about saving people. And he says, some people, you got to scare them into heaven. And there's those people that every Sunday, they really need hellfire and brimstone just to make it through the week. So they're scared of heaven. And he says, you know what? If that's the last resort, whatever you got to do to save them, do it. (laughs) Tell them they're going to hell if they don't change every week. Make sure you add every week if they need it every week. Don't just tell them the first part. But he also says this. Speaking of the lost, and of some have compassion making a difference. Do you Realize the difference you can make in somebody's life with your compassion, with your love for souls. The difference. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Lord, open the doors. Lord, open my eyes. Lord, reveal to them. Lord, let a miracle happen. Lord, use their circumstances. And Jude tells us, some people, all they need... All they need is some love for their soul. And you know what? I'm real comfortable with saying as soon as you walk through those doors, I'll love you. But am I willing to walk out the door and go, as the parable says, he said, the king said, go out in the highways, the byways, go find the people that nobody cares about and go bring them in. I'll just ask myself the question. How many of those people have I sought out? Your compassion, your love for souls can make the difference in somebody's life. And let me just say my love for souls, as Hebrews says, is best exhibited. When I follow in His footsteps and I'm willing to let my love take me outside of the camp, outside of my comfort zone, outside of the things that I may think are normal, what I'm used to, If I'm willing to let it take me past that. If I'm going to follow in his footsteps, I've got to be a teacher in my life. I've got to be compassionate. I've got to see the needs in others. I've got to take care of people. And he's he's not just referring to, to those within the church. But if I see a need in somebody's life, Jesus was just compassionate towards them. And I have to be a lover of souls in my life I don't just have to feel good about souls I don't just have to think it's a concern because I live for the Lord no I have to actually have a love for souls in my life takes no talent it takes no ability to do any of these and let me just challenge you that when Jesus taught the multitudes when Jesus was compassionate when he loved souls he saw the miracles he saw 5,000 fed He saw a church established. Yeah, I'm looking for the mountaintops and I'm doing all these things and sometimes it seems impossible. Let me just challenge you tonight that if I want to follow the Lord, just look at these three areas every day in my life. How can I teach somebody? How can I be compassionate to someone? Lord, how how can I go outside of the camp and find a soul today in my life? And I would challenge you that as you do these things, you might find that you'll, fi- you'll see yourself walking on water. You might find the miracles following. You might find the healings following. But it's in that daily grind. It's in that consistent walk for God. If I can implement these things in my life, I'll change my world. I'll turn it upside down. I want us to pray tonight. I, I, I felt a conviction in my soul as, as, as I was going over this stuff. The compassion, the love for souls. I, I, wanna, I, I need that in my life more than, than, than I have it now. I need more compassion in my life. I need, I've got to have a greater love for souls. Like I said, I'm, I'm willing to welcome whosoever will, let them come. But I'm challenging you. What if it's you to go, not them to come? Let's pray tonight. Lord Jesus, we come before you.